1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: This episode of American Biography is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audible.com. Audible, forward slash American biography. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So download your free audiobook today by signing up at www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. And welcome back to American Biography, a proud member of the HistoryPodcasters.com network. This is the life of John Marshall, Episode 8, Going Rogue. So I'm back, and you may have noticed that this episode is out a little later than usual. The last few weeks have been extremely busy with planning, travel, attending, and hosting birthday parties, It was all great fun and worth every moment, but now I'm back behind the mic and I'm ready to go, so let's get down to it. At the end of our last episode, we left John Marshall in a tough spot. On paper, at least, his immediate future looked promising enough. He was a captain in the Continental Army with a reputation for judiciousness and bravery, who was also a licensed attorney to boot, and he was courting a girl from an impeccable family all by the age of 25. However, we know the reality of his situation belied these superficially rosy prospects. He commanded no troops, and his furlough was beginning to seem more like a permanent vacation. Due to the war, the courts were closed, and so legal work could produce no income until they reopened, making his career launch appear to be a bit of a misfire. Furthermore, without an income, it was doubtful as to when he could marry Polly Ambler, If at all, these were indeed dark days for John Marshall. John was once more back at Oak Hill for most of September 1780. By the end of the month, having lost patience, he picked up, and as horses were scarce in Virginia, he set off on foot for Philadelphia. Once more the capital, having been back in American hands since General Clinton abandoned the city in 1778. What John's expectations were for this trip is unclear. Unconvincingly, Beveridge argues that Marshall undertook the 200-mile journey just to be inoculated against the smallpox, saying that now that John was in love, he suddenly had a reason to become more concerned about his health and safety. But in case you can't hear my eyes rolling, let me just say I find this unlikely. And it's doubtful that Marshall wasn't already inoculated by this point, since Washington had been aggressively pursuing a policy of mass variolation within the army, including new recruits, since February of 1777, the year Marshall joined. By the end of 1777, nearly 40,000 troops had already been vaccinated, and that number would only grow. A February 5th, 1777 letter from Washington to the Continental Congress shows how seriously the Commander-in-Chief took the threat of this illness. He writes, The smallpox has made such head in every quarter that I find it impossible to keep it from spreading through the whole army in the natural way. I have therefore determined not only to inoculate all the troops here now that have not had it, but shall order Dr. Shippen to inoculate the recruits as fast as they come to Philadelphia. They will lose no time because they will go through the disorder while their clothing, arms, and accoutrements are getting ready. It seems far more likely that John undertook this trip because by this time it was rather evident that if Virginia intended to raise more troops and ever recall supernumerary officers, it would have already done so. But Marshall was still a commissioned captain, and if there was any place he could go to try to get back in the mix, and perhaps attach himself to some force, it's a reasonable enough guess that it would be in the capital. Still, it was a rather desperate gambit. The desperation can be seen in the nearly inhuman speed at which Marshall walked, covering by his own account some thirty miles a day, which Yeah, let me just say, sure, he's 25, and he's near the peak of physical health. And as an infantryman, he's probably used to marching, a lot. But the average walking speed of a human being is 3.1 miles an hour, and Marshall would not have been traversing a lot of nice, smooth, level, paved roads. So that meant he'd be sustaining this speed, at times uphill, or pushing through dense brush, or while fording on bridge rivers, for nearly 10 hours a day. So, yeah, 30 miles a day is insane. And he apparently did this without stopping for a bath along the way, because in one of the stories that he would love to tell at dinner parties years later, he says when he finally arrived in Philadelphia, he was apparently so grizzled and wild-looking that he was turned away from hotels because of his shabby clothing, long beard, and unkempt hair, despite his protestations that he was an officer and a member of the Bar. But as Marshall traveled north, the war was moving south. For some time, the British had been developing their so-called Southern strategy. The change in the British approach was caused by a number of factors, such as an increasing feeling that New England, that hotbed of sedition, was a lost cause. There was also intense frustration back in London at the failure of their forces to build upon the many victories in the Mid-Atlantic over the previous years, and there was also worry for the Caribbean sugar islands now that France had entered the war. But the heart of the new Southern plan was really built around the presumption that the majority of the colonial population were still loyal to the crown, and that those loyalists were more densely concentrated in the Southern colonies. Many of America's most tradable goods also originated in the South, disrupting the production and trade of tobacco, indigo, and rice would have an invaluable strategic importance as Virginia and the Shenandoah Valley's produce helped sustain American credit abroad and feed the Continental Army at home. So in 1780, General Clinton split his forces, keeping a strong presence in New York to make sure Washington and his troops stayed pinned down there outside of the city. He took 8,500 men south where he captured the patriot stronghold at Charleston, South Carolina that May. In response to this loss, the hero of Saratoga, Horatio Gates, was dusted off and given command of the Southern Continental Army. However, he was decisively beaten at the Battle of Camden, also in South Carolina, that August by Lord Cornwallis. With the situation growing serious, that November, Washington sent one of his most trusted generals— Nathaniel Green South, to take overall command of what remained of the American forces in that area. John Marshall did an about-face and returned to his home state and assisted Baron von Steuben, whom Green had given command in Virginia and charged with raising troops and supplies in that colony for the Southern Army. As fate would have it, Thomas Jefferson was still serving in his second term as governor. Jefferson possessed many enviable talents but few would ever choose to call him a man of action, and as events would shortly reveal he was not the right man for the moment. Now, in his defense, Jefferson was not totally feckless and worked with von Steuben as best he could to raise the requested supplies and even teamed up with the Prussian to try and streamline Virginia's moribund war administration. And despite finally goading the Virginia legislature into authorizing a levy of 3,500 troops, By December, Von Steuben, along with Marshall, had only managed to raise about 1,500 recruits. And even then, the state wouldn't pony up the funds for weapons. Because, as Jefferson explained to Von Steuben, Virginia, you see, was responsible for arming the militia. However, these were Continental troops, and the responsibility for arming these men belonged to the Congress. Roughly half of these poorly equipped and largely weaponless recruits took stock of the situation, looked at one another, and promptly deserted. Those that remained were sent off as they were to support Green's operations in North Carolina. Virginia was left virtually defenseless.
0: Hold up, what was that?
2: Fairly or unfairly, for the events that are about to transpire, Jefferson's reputation pretty much takes it on the chin. It's true that Jefferson had been warned of a possible invasion of Virginia by Washington in a December ninth, 1780 letter, which read, I am at this moment informed from New York. Another embarkation is taking place, supposed to be destined southward. Which, admittedly, is pretty vague, and I'm not sure what Jefferson was supposed to do with that information, but still, with hindsight being twenty-twenty and all, I'm pretty sure that nothing wasn't the right answer. And it didn't help that by temperament, Jefferson was a doctrinaire, and in many ways was constrained by his own governing philosophy. Proactive government didn't suit his tastes, and he abhorred the idea of anything resembling standing army this vague intelligence might be altogether incorrect. And he had to at least consider that, for if the governor just reflexively called up the militia without any need, those militiamen would stand around consuming the supplies that he was trying to gather for Green, while waiting for a threat that never materialized. So we can see how Jefferson was in a bit of a pickle here. However, Clinton had ordered the infamous American turncoat, Benedict Arnold, along with 1,600 troops, to invade the helpless state of Virginia and destroy its outgoing shipment of tobacco, and if it could, along the way, burn any military stores they could find in order to hinder the resupply of green. On December 31st, news reached Jefferson that 27 ships were reported to be sailing up the James River. He duly notified legislative leaders and dispatched officers to various spots in the Low Country, in case trouble broke out. But not until January 2nd, 1781, did he issue a call for 4,600 militia to come to the defense of the capital. Arnold put ashore at Westover, Virginia on January 3rd, easily overcame the defenses of the Upper James, and moving quickly, approached the city by the next day. Jefferson's late call for the militia meant by the time that Arnold appeared on the horizon, there were only about 200 soldiers in the city. They, along with the government, fled. Marshall provides us an account of Arnold's raid into Virginia, and was in the area, scrambling to patch together a resistance alongside von Steuben. He notes that Arnold stopped just outside of Richmond and dispatched Lieutenant Colonel Simcoe, who some of you may know as the intense-looking villain in AMC's drama, Turn, to nearby West Ham, Virginia, where those forces destroyed a foundry, a boring mill, a powder magazine, along with other military stores and government papers, which had ironically been sent there for safekeeping. The fact that Arnold felt he could act with such impunity as to split his forces at this juncture speaks volumes of the impotence of Virginia's military situation. Once Simcoe rejoined Arnold, they descended on the state capital. Of this, Marshall writes simply, "...public stores and a large quantity of rum and salt, the property of private individuals, were entirely destroyed." Arnold left Richmond with his troops the next day, and by the 10th, they had re-embarked at Westover and were sailing back down the James River. Meanwhile, Von Steuben was finally at the head of something resembling an organized resistance, and near Hood's Landing, where the river narrowed, he and Marshall, along with troops under the command of George Rogers Clark, ambushed Arnold. The engagement enjoyed some initial success, until, that is, fire began being returned, at which point, to quote Marshall, "...the Americans broke and fled in the utmost confusion." Jefferson biographer Merrill Peterson calls Arnold's lightning raid a tour de force and shares the account Jefferson provided to Washington of the damage. Three hundred muskets, some artillery pieces, several tons of powder were lost. Quantities of clothing, artisans' tools, quartermaster's stores, including one hundred and twenty sides of leather, destroyed, the boring mill and room of the foundry consumed but the furnaces and chimneys secure, and the greater part of the papers of the Auditor and the Council of State, gone. In terms of sheer proficiency, Arnold achieved all of this in just days, at the mere cost of seven killed and twenty-three wounded. After Hood's landing, more militia gradually began to materialize, and Arnold withdrew to Portsmouth, where he ensconced himself in a secure position. Von Steuben advised Jefferson that it was unlikely they could eject him from this position, but a small force would be able to contain him. Jefferson took this advice. In February 1781, during the lull which followed Arnold's withdrawal, John Marshall resigned his commission and left the Continental Army for good. His stated reasons for doing so were entirely personal, as he wrote to Joseph's story many years later. I had formed a strong attachment to the young lady whom I afterwards married, and, as we had more officers than soldiers, thought I might, without violating the duty I owed my country, pay some attention to my future prospects in life. However, his biographer Jean Smith finds Marshall's justification unconvincing and questions whether there weren't alternate motivations for his resignation. And on the surface, yes, an abrupt resignation feels incongruent with Marshall's demonstrable dedication to the cause of independence. As Smith writes, It does not ring true that someone with John Marshall's commitment to the United States would resign from military service with the war on one to pursue his personal career. Arnold still held an important toehold in Virginia, Lafayette and Rochambeau, were marching south to reinforce the state, and Cornwallis had begun marching north. Indeed, February 1781 saw the war shift its focus to Virginia, where it finally concluded later that year. It is strange that just as the war which he'd been chasing was finally coming to him, Marshall would just throw his hands up and say, I'm out! Smith goes as far as to posit a possible personal tiff between Marshall and von Steubing, as the likely cause of the resignation, but admits that there's a decided lack of evidence for this. more to decided with Marshall himself, since he'd hoofed it to Philadelphia the previous fall. Marshall had demonstrated his willingness to make grand, all-or-nothing gestures to try and make something happen. Witnessing the complete failure of Virginia over the recent months may simply have made it clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that the state was never going to get its stuff together, and that his military career was a dead end. He was also in love, a state not always conducive to rational thought, and he was perhaps impatient to begin making his way in the world. And where the army had ceased to be a vehicle for his personal growth, and with his enlistment nearly up anyway, perhaps it was just time to cut that albatross loose and move on. And to be honest, this type of reasonable irrationability seems like a perfectly human response to me. Okay, that's where we're going to wrap up today. But please join me next time when Marshall, now out of the Army, discovers that love is also a battlefield. Please remember, this show is listener-supported, and if you'd like to help, you can sign up To get a free audiobook and free 30-day trial by going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography or by visiting our website, AmericanBiography.webs.com and making a secure PayPal donation. American Biography is also on Facebook, and you can check us out on Twitter at American underscore Bio. And finally, please send me any questions or comments at American Biography Podcast at gmail.com. So that's all I've got for today. But before you go, please stay tuned as my friend and fellow History Podcaster.com member, Steve Guerra, tells you a little bit about his show, The History of the Papacy. Thanks, everybody, and I'll talk to you soon. Take it away, Steve.
3: I'm Steve, and I host and create A2Z History Page presents the History of the Papacy. This is a podcast about the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. The History of the Papacy podcast is more than a simple listing of biographies of Popes from Peter to Francis or some point beyond. Think of listening to this podcast as joining a tour group that will visit all the usual interesting points in papal and Christian history— but we'll also step over the ropes and look at events and occurrences that don't normally come up in the official tour. My main premise is that from the early first century onward, the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church has really made up a huge part of the history of the Western world. We'll discover many interesting facts about the history of the Popes of Rome, the Christian Church, and how all this fits into the larger narrative of history. This podcast will be more than just a narrative, though. Don't worry, we'll have a narrative in the main episodes of the podcast, but we'll also have sidetrack episodes, where we'll explore interesting issues that don't quite fit into the narrative, but are just too interesting to pass up on. To keep things interesting, we'll also have interviews and guest hosts who bring in other perspectives on the issues we discuss. If you're at all interested in Christianity and the history of how Christianity was formed and transformed throughout the ages, I encourage you to give the show a try. You can learn more about the show, subscribe, comment, and much more at the website A2ZHistoryPage.com That is A-T-O-Z HistoryPage.com Thank you very much, and I look forward to seeing you on our next stop on our trip through the history of the Roman popes and Christian church.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.